Muhammad Ali is without a doubt one of the most well-known and celebrated athletes of all time. I mean, let's face it, at one point, he was the most recognized name and face in the entire world, and that included world leaders. He had incredible success in the ring and a larger-than-life personality, but was known for so much more, including his political and spiritual exploits. Born Cassius Clay, he embraced the nation of Islam and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Citing religious reasons, he refused induction into the army and the obligation to fight in the Vietnam War, all at the risk of jeopardizing what was already a remarkable career. As a matter of fact, he cost himself almost four years in the ring when he was in his prime. All this makes him a fascinating on-screen subject. This is The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, a podcast about the greatest sports movies of all time. I'm your host, Bruce Murray. Randy Gordon is the former New York State Boxing Commissioner and host of Sirius XM's At the Fights. When you're talking about Muhammad Ali, you're talking about one of the finest athletes I think ever put on this planet. He was about six foot four, and I know many guys who are six four, six five, six six. Ali was the biggest six four I have ever seen in my life life and everybody who's ever been around him knows what i'm talking about just the small waist and then he just went up in a v he just gave this appearance of being so incredibly large and everything about him see heavyweights usually are slow slow of hand slow of foot big puncher can knock holes in walls he was not like that he wasn't that huge puncher but he was like lightweight quick. Christopher Wilkinson was the man tasked with writing the screenplay to the 2001 film, Ali. With somebody like that, it's a little bit mystifying, you know, how, how this kid from Louisville, Kentucky, who, you know, he had a bike stolen and uh, his dad said, well, take some boxing lessons. And then he just met this guy who was a mentor to him. Uh, obviously had this blinding talent, but still it doesn't, it doesn't explain. It, there's, it just feels like that there's some, some higher force involved when you get to, a, a, you know, like a character like that. It's a story that's almost too amazing to be true. This divine intervention changed the course of the sporting world for decades. And perhaps even more impressively, it shook up politics in the United States as well. Really incredible that any athlete in 1966, let alone an African-American athlete, would put his beliefs before his livelihood. Can you imagine a sports star today saying like, you know what, I, I, I don't like my those sneakers being made by children. I, I don't think I'm going to take the 90 million bucks this year. Forget that. Ali put his entire life on the line. It's 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 it boggles the mind when you think about it, you know, like when you think about it in the context of of today, what people are willing to do today by by refusing the draft. And, you know, he could have done uh, six fights at army bases, would never have the deal was he would never have had to wear a uniform. And to do that as a matter of principle, you know, he's such a a. Huge, huge character. Um, it, it was quite a daunting project, for sure. Prior to the first draft of Ali being written, Chris and Stephen had to develop a treatment of the film for Ali's family. 
Now, the filmmakers didn't necessarily need the family to sign off on any aspect of the story in particular, but it always makes for a better process if the people that are portrayed in the film are comfortable enough to endorse it. So what did Chris do? He went to lunch with Lani Ali, Muhammad's wife, to talk through their vision for the movie. And I remember uh, asking her if there's anything that she'd feel uncomfortable with, you know, in the, in the draft. Just because, you know, you don't, you, you, you want to honor her family, her experience. And so she said, yes, there are three things. And I said, okay, what are they? She said, the first thing is that I don't think it's necessary to say anything bad about of any, any of his ex-wives, of which there were a few. I said, I said, that's not a problem. The story's not about that. She said, good. I don't uh, think you need to say anything bad about any of his kids. I said, why would we do that? No, that's, that's, that's not a problem. She said, the third thing, which is the most important thing, I want you to make it absolutely clear that that man has never done a lick of housework in his entire life. <laughs> so once these fairly simple parameters were agreed upon, the writers went to work drafting up the screenplay. During the process, they even stayed at Ali's house for three days while Ali was there. He was 56 years old at the time and 14 years into his battle with Parkinson's, so he was quite fragile but still quick as a whip. This was an opportunity for the writers to get to know the legend that was Muhammad Ali. It's not a documentary, but, you know, I like, when, I like to go to, when I go to a movie, I like to feel like the movie that I'm watching is at least somewhat true. So, you know, we were very scrupulous in terms of, there's so many legends about him, and you kind of have to decide what is, uh, what's true and what isn't. As I said, it's not a documentary, but you want to try to, to honor the man, honor the, the, the facts as, as much as possible. You know, uh, <laughs> first casualty of historical fiction is the truth. But that said, we, I can tell you, we always did our best to try to honor the, the facts as much as possible. The fact that Ali had such a gigantic footprint in the sports world and beyond meant that there was so much to cover. So how do you condense everything from his life into a length appropriate for a mainstream movie? The first draft, if memory serves, I think it was 188 pages long. A normal screenplay is, you know, 120. They like, uh, you know, they say that they don't, producers won't read anything over 110. And, you know, we, we finished it and we said, okay, well, obviously we've got to cut 50 pages at least. And, you know, uh, I took it home and I read it and it kind of held together. So for a first draft, um, we turned that in and uh, Will Smith committed to it the next day. But it hadn't been that easy to get Will Smith on board initially. Before the script was written, the role was offered to Will, but he turned it down because he didn't feel like he had what it took to embody someone with the stature of Muhammad Ali. What made him change his mind? Here's Randy. Ali himself was given a list of who would you like to play you? And he said, Will Smith. He then called Will Smith. And Will Smith actually couldn't even believe it was Ali on the phone. And Ali was saying to him, I want you to take the part. I want you to play me. And he said, that's all it took hearing Muhammad Ali say that to me. I said, okay, let's do it. 
Once the first draft was written and Will Smith was attached, it was time to go into the studios at Columbia Pictures and share with Ali what they had written. The vice president of Columbia at the time, Matt Tomac, didn't want Ali reading the script. So Chris and Steven were told to give Ali just an overview of the story they had written. And so uh, all we did, we printed out the, um, the scene headings to just to remind ourselves. And so we started and then like within, I would say three minutes, Ali just is kind of like dropping off to, to sleep. It was clear, like, again, he's Ali. He doesn't, he, he, what does he care? Now they had a script with Will Smith attached and the approval of Muhammad Ali and his estate. The film was good to go. But once the studio hired director Michael Mann, whose credits include Thief, Heat, and The Last of the Mohicans, it became clear that he had a much different view of what the central thesis of the film should be. And of course, as the director, his vision won out. I just felt like that that spiritual aspect of Ali wasn't highlighted as much as it could be because I don't think it really interested Michael, Michael Mann that much. It was Ali's spirituality that made him the man that he was. His faith taught him that not only should he not be ashamed about being a black man, something with which he didn't find through Christianity, it also gave him the belief he was the greatest boxer in the world. He was unbeatable because of his faith. Without it, he may never have become the boxer we know him as today. This lack of focus on Ali's spirituality also meant that his relationship with Malcolm X wasn't a particularly big focus in the film. Now, here's the background. Ali met Malcolm X in 1962 and became his mentee. They were very close, almost like brothers, right up until JFK's assassination on November 22, 1963. After this, Malcolm X went against the orders of Elijah Muhammad, the man who formed the Nation of Islam and had great influence over Muhammad Ali. The orders were not to comment on the president's assassination. Instead, Malcolm X remarked in a speech that the murder was a case of the chickens coming home to roost. Because of this, Elijah Muhammad never forgave Malcolm X, and neither did Ali. Malcolm X was excommunicated from the Nation of Islam and was murdered just over a year later by three members of the nation. Here's Nico Ali Walsh, Ali's grandson, who is also a professional boxer. Malcolm X had such an impact on my grandfather's life. I just remember, I, I remember hearing stories about how his death impacted my grandfather. Ali was indeed devastated when Malcolm X passed away. His one big regret in life was not being able to apologize to his former mentor for turning his back on him. For Chris, the relationship between these two men was an incredibly important part of Ali's journey and one that shouldn't be understated. His whole relationship with Malcolm was, was uh, in some ways, that's, that's, that's tragic that they were split up because of the split between Elijah Muhammad and 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 Malcolm, uh, you know, I think that the that the bottom line for all of it is that he was just a deeply religious person. The movie that, that was ultimately made focused on the Zaire fight, which I think was probably smart. But in our first conception of it, it was the 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 entire life, you know, from boyhood on. The fight in Zaire being, of course, the rumble in the jungle. Ali Foreman, 1974. Now, Nico felt that leaving all of the details about his grandfather's spirituality out of the film was a missed opportunity. I think they could have emphasized it more. Nobody other than my family will understand just how 
spiritual he was and how important his religion was to him. It, it was more important to him than life, than boxing, you know? So um, they definitely could have captured that more. It's so hard with my grandfather because he, he lived the life of, of like, you know, a, a, a king. So like, if they were if they were to make a movie of my grandfather, they could make an entire movie based off of his childhood, you know, getting his bike stolen and going into the boxing gym. They can make an entire movie based off that. They can make an entire movie based off of his old age, you know, the times we spent with him. They can make an entire movie based off of one fight, another fight. Like, you know, so it's hard to grab everything and put it all in one. Despite the shift in focus, there's no denying that Michael Mann did a terrific job of maintaining the validity of the material. I mean, his Ali felt and looked like Ali. Talk about scrupulous accuracy. Like, there are punches, there are moves in there that, you know, that you got to give Michael Mann a, and, and Will a great deal of credit. And that's where we're going next, turning Will Smith into Muhammad Ali, an incredible portrayal that earned him his first Academy Award nomination. He would ultimately lose to Denzel Washington for training day, but it remains an iconic performance. He completely channeled him. You know, he channeled uh, his heroism and his charisma. I I just thought Will did uh, just a remarkable job with that. Here's Nico. I know Will Smith has been like a friend of my grandfather for many years. So uh, he was like the ideal guy to be playing him. I don't think personally another actor could have done any better. You know, obviously you're not going to get in any biopic, you're not going to get a hundred percent of the person, but he got as close as I believe you can get. It it was cool seeing uh, him, him uh, portray him, my grandfather, the way he did. Randy Gordon. The first time that he spoke in the movie, I think there was an opening scene with him jogging and two policemen pull up alongside of him. And this is basically in the early 60s. And they said, where you running to, son? And he just turned and he answered them. But I could tell, oh, my God, he's got Ali's intonation down. He's got his voice. I can't wait till this movie gets going. I thought he did a tremendous job. He turned himself into, uh, uh, you know, he, he gained, I don't know, 25 pounds of solid muscle. And that those fights, the, the fights themselves are so um, not only accurately created, but just beautifully achieved. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. In fact, 25 pounds of muscle may be underselling it. It's been reported that Smith actually put on about 35 pounds of muscle for the role. To do this, Smith moved to Aspen, Colorado, where he would get up at 6.30 every morning to go for a five-mile run before hitting the gym for three hours of ring work and a full afternoon of weight training. Within a few months, Smith got his weight up to 210 pounds, which was the exact weight Ali was when he first fought Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship back in 1964. The way he looked, the way he moved in the ring, the way he was hitting the speed bag. Because remember, this is an actor just portraying somebody. And to even hit the speed bag is a very difficult thing. I've tried to teach a lot of people how to hit the speed bag, and it takes them quite a while before they, oh, I got it. 
There are two big sequences throughout the film where Will Smith really gets to show off his newly acquired boxing talent. The first comes at the beginning of the movie, with the heavyweight fight between Ali, still going by the name Cassius Clay at the time, and Sonny Liston. Ali ultimately wins that match, which in turn sets up a second bout between him and Liston. Ali wins that one as well. Then the movie shifts away from boxing and over to politics, when, as mentioned before in 1966, Ali is forced out of boxing due to his refusal to be inducted into the armed forces. This results in a three-year hiatus from the sport. Then, just after the midpoint of the film, comes the fight of the century against Smoke and Joe Frazier. A monumental bout, not only because it was Ali's return to boxing, but because of the financial stakes attached for Ali. He was broke. Uh, but we have to also understand that um, at that point, Ali had not just made more money than any fighter in history. He'd made more money than all of the other fighters combined. And, you know, he had an entourage of, you know, what, a uh, hundred people who were robbing him blind. And I finally came to the fact he had such blind confidence in himself. And I don't think he cared. He didn't care about money. Uh, and so he was, I think, completely cognizant of what was going on. The fact that he was flat broke in the early 70s until, you know, you know who saved him, right? Joe Frazier. Yeah, I mean, Joe Frazier gave him the, the title shot. He didn't have to do that. The final fight depicted in the film was the Rumble in the Jungle. Ali and the then undefeated and undisputed heavyweight champion George Foreman in Kinshasa, Zaire. No one, including me, expected Ali to win this fight, but he did after knocking Foreman out in the eighth round. That was a real big moment in his life. One of the biggest moments. He regains the title in a fight where even his wife, Belinda, didn't believe her husband was going to win the fight. She even says, you're going to get killed. According to Randy, when Muhammad was in the ring with George, he heard how heavy Foreman was breathing. That gave him the confidence he needed to face this dangerous fighter. He decided to lie on the ropes and let Foreman throw his shots. Foreman himself has told me that Ali, he said, he pulled the rope-a-dope and I was the dope that he roped. Another one of the all-in transformational performances that we see in this film is that of Jamie Foxx who played the aforementioned Drew Bundini Brown, the assistant trainer and cornerman of Muhammad Ali. While Fox wasn't recognized for his performance by the Academy, he still did more than enough to impress the people who knew the mannerisms and idiosyncrasies of the real Bundini. Well, we're in this theater packed to the hilt. It had to be about three, 400 people in there. And the first time that I heard Jamie Foxx as Bundini Brown speak, I couldn't help it. I blurted out, oh, my God, he nailed him. Bundini was an incredibly influential person on Muhammad Ali, just as the film shows. He was Ali's right-hand man. And a lot of these fighters, people don't realize they need that extra little shot of support. And Bundini gave that to Ali. And he was the one who coined float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Your hands can't hit what your eyes can't see. Rumble, young man, rumble. And Ali picked up on it, and Ali needed Bundini. Bundini needed Ali. They needed each other. 
But Bandini had a dark side. While he was a very close friend to Ali, he was also one of the many people to exploit Ali in his kindness. Much of this could be attributed to his well-known issues with substance abuse. He even took Ali's championship belt and sold it for whatever he sold it for, just so he can get his hands on some more substance. And then finally, Ali had it with him one day and broke into the little place he was living and basically slapped him around. We see a version of this in the film. Ali, along with his friend and biographer Howard Bingham, played by Jeffrey Wright, storms into Bundini's apartment in the middle of the day, where they find Bundini asleep and strung out. Ali then smashes a bottle of liquor and starts slapping Bundini, trying to knock some sense into him. After a brief moment of reflection, Bundini confides in Ali that he sold his championship belt for $500 on Lenox Avenue and then stuck that $500 into his arm. I was actually in a room with Ali when he slapped Bundini, knocking him to the floor, firing him. This is the night before the Larry Holmes fight in 1980. Said, get out of here. I never want to see you again. P.S. The next night, Bundini was in Ali's corner. Ali needed him. Ali loved him. But there were times he really got pissed off at Bundini. One more performance worth noting is John Voight's portrayal of the legendary ABC broadcaster Howard Cosell. Cosell played a huge role in Muhammad Ali's life. He was incredibly invested, not only in his career, but his personal life as well. In fact, there was a point in time where Cosell may have been Ali's only true friend. He saw a lot of the people he thought were really his friends walk away from him at the time that he was stripped of the title for the three and a half years in 1967. And he said, the one guy who never turned his back on me was Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell, he said, offered me, he said, Muhammad, if you ever find yourself in a need for money, call me. I'll be there for you. He said, do you know what that meant? He said, because there were times that I wondered, where is my next dollar going to come from? Will Smith, Academy Award nominated. John Voight, Academy Award nominated. Jamie Foxx should have been Academy Award nominated. This movie is filled with tremendous performances from some of the best actors in the world who knew how important it would be to portray their characters accurately. They studied the guy's intonations, how he walked, how he stood. Everything about it, I loved. Look, there were things in it. You, you could pick a little hole here and there, whatever. But they take journalistic liberties to put things in to make it maybe a little bit more exciting. We heard earlier on from Chris that although they weren't interested in making a documentary, they were still careful to make sure that the stories being told in the film were as accurate as they could make them. What liberties did the film take? Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the film with Ali's championship debut against then heavyweight champion Sonny Liston. During the scene, about midway through the fight, we see Ali complain about a burning sensation in his eyes. It even gets to the point where it looks like he might not be able to continue. In the film, it's hinted that Ali thinks Liston tried to cheat. According to Randy Gordon, that's not what happened. Sonny Liston did have an injured shoulder, and they were rubbing some kind of liniment on the shoulder, some kind of muscle relaxer or, you know, one of those heat kind of things. And in a clinch, apparently, if he's in a clinch and Liston's shoulder is on Ali's shoulder, whatever, and they're shoulder to shoulder, body to body. Now, Liston jabs him, and he catches that liniment, 
And then maybe jabs Ali and Ali gets it, the sweat and everything. And he's rubbing his eyes. The liniment gets in there. This is a real possibility of what happened. And it was burning Ali. But what people don't know is that the nation of Islam was sitting outside the ring and they were looking at Angelo Dundee. What did you do to our guy? And Angelo actually had to take the sponge, dip it into the water bucket, and then wipe it across his own eyes. And he's going, look, it's not something that's in the water. It's not me. Nobody realized that. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't put that in the movie. Now let's fast forward to another fight scene, the one at the end of the movie, the rumble in the jungle. John Voight, Howard Cosell is calling the fight. It's over. It's over. It's over. Muhammad Ali has regained. Well, the fact is, Howard Cosell was not in Kinshasa Zaire. He wasn't there. But it's called that journalistic liberty that you were talking about. It just, you know, he was such a big part of Muhammad Ali's life. Speaking of the great Howard Cosell, another thing the movie didn't quite get right was something much more subtle, something most people wouldn't have picked up on. That is, unless they knew Howard Cosell personally or ever saw him sitting at a bar or at dinner with friends. Everybody knew in the business that Howard Cosell had one drink. He loved vodka on the rocks. And in the movie, Ali, it shows him drinking a dark drink, like scotch or something. It wasn't. He didn't drink that because on several occasions, when we were at dinners and he was there, I'd say, Howard, can I go get you a drink? He said, thanks. And then I said, what are you drinking? He goes, don't be a moron. You know what I drink. It was Stoli's on the rocks. It wasn't scotch. So they showed the movie with him drinking scotch. It, would, it had to have been Stoli's. Throughout the film, we see how unfaithful Ali was to his wives. Ali's grandson, Nico Ali Walsh. They showed a side of my grandfather in the movie where he, he was very unfaithful when it came to women. That was his downfall. Like he, in, in my, my whole family, I knew that growing up, they always said that my grandfather just loved, loved, loved women. And uh, they showed that in the movie, which I thought was very accurate. Uh, there was a scene where my grandmother got in a fight with him. In the movie, I believe he, he started like, yelling at her or, or something along those lines. And I remember being told that, you know, my grandfather wouldn't, when it came to women, he wouldn't even raise his voice really. Obviously no one can be perfect. Uh, in my eyes, you know, my grandfather, if he didn't have that fault with women, he would have been perfect because that was his fault. He was just not a faithful husband. <laughs> that that was his his fault and i'm i'm glad they showed it because it shows that he is human you know he's not you know god he's human there have been countless movies tv shows documentaries and podcasts all dedicated to the life and legacy of muhammad ali it just shows how much of his story there is to be told he is a truly fascinating subject who is still very relevant today 44 years after his final professional win it's movies like ali that allow the legend to live on. My family loves movies. We're like, we're cinema freaks. So what movies do, it brings eyes and attention to people who, to an, a, a different audience, right? So like the movie was, yeah, of course, it's like kind of a boxing movie, but it's a biopic on my grandfather's life. But it brought younger eyes that 
aren't used to seeing my grandfather in that way and it, it showed them who he is so i think that's always important it, it definitely brought a new generation's eyes to my grandfather's life Coming up next week on The Replay, sports on the big screen. That's one of the other big myths about this scandal is that uh, the players were not seduced by the gamblers. Um, the players were the ones who initiated this fix. Um, it was Eddie Seacott and Chick Gandel who approached the gamblers and said, hey, you know, we've got some other teammates who might be interested. And, uh, can you uh, put up some money to help us uh, fix this World Series? The Replay, sports on the big screen is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, our sound designer, Robert Moore, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.